If you have a Bible, you can make your way to Hebrews 7, though we will only be there for just a minute. Uh, We're going to be doing something a little bit different today. Um, But as we get started, just like in any sphere of life that um, you could think of, there are things that are just sort of givens. And so uh, it has become like over the last, I don't know, 10, 12, however long it is that Nick Saban's been in Alabama, it has become a given that they're going to be in the college football playoffs year in, year out. It's not a question. It is a given. Uh, it, for me personally, if I, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to get this thing. It's sitting here bothering me. There we go. Um, for me personally, if I go to Kroger and there are the all-natural white cheddar Cheetos, it is a given. You can ask my kids. I am going to buy them. Probably all of them. Because they're not there a whole lot. And then I'm probably going to eat them on the drive home. Like, love those things. It is a given. It is also a given. Maybe it's this way for you as well. I don't know. But when I write an important email, and I hit send, I read it. Even though I just reread it like ten times trying to proof it. But I read it again. Or when I'm in traffic. Uh, you know, and there's, I mean, standstill traffic. It is a given for me that if I change lanes, I'm going to mark some other car that's nearby, and I'm going to use that to find, did I make the right decision? Should I stay there? These are just givens for me personally. You have givens that are in your life that you just do, whether you know them or not, just, you know, if you think through them, you're going to see these, you're going to identify these. And there are things that are just givens in Scripture as well. Now, I would call them imperative givens because they are, you know, at some point commanded. But then a whole lot of the rest of Scripture just treats them as, as givens. It's just assumed. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Like praying. It's commanded that we pray, but most of Scripture is about how we pray. Like, there's a right way to pray, there's a wrong way to pray. Same thing with sharing our faith. It's commanded that we are to share our faith. But most of Scripture is describing how people did that, showing that there's good ways, there's bad ways. Same thing with um, work. We are commanded to work, but most of Scripture is just assuming that we understand that. It's a given. We are to work. And so Scripture talks about how we are to work. What's the motivation we're to have in that? On and on and on we could go with it. We're to be members of a local church. Scripture commands that, but then it treats most of the, like that's a given, or it's, a, it's an imperative, but it treats so much of Scripture, treats that as a given. And so how are we to be members of a church? And in our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 7, we have another thing that is an imperative given. Something that's just assumed, and that's tithing. Right? It's not commanded here, it's just talked about. It's mentioned seven times in this passage, whether you talk about a tenth of the portion or the actual word tithe. And there's some differences I get with what is talked about here with tithing and this given because here we have Abraham tithing to Melchizedek. And so we'll talk about the details of all of that next week. But what I want to do this, week, this morning is just talk about this big topic of tithing. Take a necessary excursus to chase this rabbit a little bit because there's so much misunderstanding about tithing. Is it something we're supposed to do? Is it something that's been set aside? Are are we supposed to give? What, what, What does the Bible actually say about all of this? 
And so we're going to try to tackle that a little bit this morning. So the plan of action, again, a little bit different. We'll return to exegeting Hebrews next week, but today's going to be topical. And so we're going to look at, you know, across the Bible and look at what it has to say with stewardship. And so the first thing I want to try to do is just give us a great big biblical overview and a worldview that we must get. And that is that, like, the, the sheer scope of stewardship. It's not just about money. Stewardship is much bigger than that. And so we'll do that first. And then, just as all these other things that are imperative givens, we'll talk about like how you are to do that. There's right ways to give. There's wrong ways to give. And when we do that, go ahead and mark in your scriptures, we will be at the end of Luke 20 and the beginning of Luke 21. That's where we will go to talk about that. But number one, we've got to get, let's necessarily like understand the scope of stewardship. So number one in your notes, understand the scope of stewardship. Okay, we've got to do this. We have got to understand from the get-go the all-encompassing scope of stewardship because, again, it's not just about money. It's not just about giving. It's about everything in your life. See, everything in life is actually a stewardship issue. Everything in life is a stewardship issue. Why? Why? Because we own nothing. We own nothing. We are called to steward God's stuff. Okay? So, for example, at my house, Sarah, the four girls and I love our girls, right? You guys with your kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, love your kids. But the kids in your house actually don't own anything. Right? Like, I'll hear, hear kids at a restaurant, I'll hear kids at schools, and they'll, they'll talk about, my phone. And I'm like, do you pay the bill? Does the service fee come to you? Right? Uh, my room. Does the mortgage come to you? That's not your room, that's my room. My bed. Wrong again. My bed. I bought it. I paid for it. Right? My whatever. Nope. Mine. My food. Did you go to Kroger and buy me some Cheetos and then pay an ungodly amount of money for basic foods? What I'm getting at, I mean, the, the whole point, you, you see it. All this stuff is actually owned by the parents. They are the ones who pay for it. And listen, parents are glad. They're happy to provide for you kids. We are, I am more than happy to provide and give and make you happy. It gives me joy to do that. And this is exactly the same way it is with God. Everything in life is His. He owns it. You don't. And He's glad to share it with you. But He calls you and gives it to you to be a steward for Him. We are managers. It's not our stuff. It's His stuff. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so there's nothing that is inherently yours or mine. Like, did you make the earth? No, no, He did, so it's His. Did you make the air you breathe? No, He did. It belongs to Him. Did you make the water that you drink? No, He did. It's His. Everything on this planet is His. It's all His. Every ounce of it is His. Belongs to Him, not us. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For He's founded upon the seas. 
established it upon the rivers. And so we've got to recalibrate our hearts and minds to the theological reality that the house or apartment you live in belongs to God. The car that you drive belongs to God. The trees in your yard, the grass in your, that, that you have to mow, that belongs to God. The clothes that you're wearing, the ones that are in your closet, they belong to God. The books on your shelves, the DVDs that are in your house that you don't even watch anymore because you don't have a purpose for them, but you still have it thrown them out, they belong to God too. The songs and videos on your device belong to God. The device belongs to God. The furniture you're sitting on right now, the furniture you'll go take a nap on in a little while, that belongs to God. The money that's in your wallet, the money that's in your accounts, the money that's in your retirement, the money that's in your house, it's His. We own nothing. It's all His. We are His managers. We just temporarily steward the things that eternally belong to Him. We are a vapor. We are a mist. We are here for a little while, and then He will replace us with other stewards, and we will go on to the reward. We are stewards. And so everything is stewardship. Everything. Your life, your time, your body, your mind, your job, the family God gave you, or the singleness God gave you. The point is, steward well whatever He gave you. Steward it. You don't own it. It's His, but you are called to steward it. And so we have to understand this all-encompassing scope of stewardship. That is the first thing when we talk about giving, stewardship. We have to understand it's all His. We own nothing. We are just stewards. But now, let's flip over to Luke chapter 20 and 21, where the thrust of this text is about understanding how we are to give. And that's number two in your notes. Understand how we are to give. Like, what are some of the motivations we are to have? What are some of the motivations we are to avoid? Because motivation matters to God. Not just that we do things, but how we do them. That matters to God. And so how are we to give? And what we're going to see are three big ways here. And the first one is a, like, not to do, and the other two will be more positive. And so 2A in your notes, do not give as pretense. Do not give as pretense, all right? So Luke chapter 20 is on page 827 in some of the black hardback Bibles. It's on page 880 in others of them. But Luke chapter 20, it's in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's how that begins. Big numbers on the page are the chapters, little numbers are the verses. So Luke 20, verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Again, this is just assumed that you give. It's a given. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. 
But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And so Jesus is here contrasting the sincerity of faith of this unnamed widow with the hypocrisy and pretentiousness of these scribes. And he's saying, don't be like that. Don't be like these guys who have prayers that are really, really long, but are really, really short in faith. They will receive the greater condemnation. So bringing that into the 21st century vernacular, what Jesus just said about these people is there's a special place in hell for unrepentant hypocrites. And so Jesus is coming hard here. And the reason Jesus is coming so hard is because of His great love and grace that He has towards hypocrites. See, hypocrisy, as Ligon Duncan put it, is a sin that keeps you from admitting who you are, what you need, and appealing to the One who is the only remedy for your soul's sickness. And so while Jesus deals so gently with sinners who understand that they are sinners... When he comes into contact with sinners who are trying to pretend like they're not sinners, he addresses them full force because they have a disease that cuts them off from self-awareness and which cuts them off from the only remedy for their sins. And so the invitation to all of us hypocrites in here, because we all are hypocrites, every single one of us, when people tell me, they're like, oh, I don't want to be a Christian or anything like that because they're, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. I'm like, yeah, it is. It totally is. That's why we need Jesus. Because we're all hypocrites. I mean, every single time we sin, is that not an act of hypocrisy? That's why we need Jesus. That's the whole point. And so we are all hypocrites. And the invitation to us hypocrites here. Jesus is calling us, like, stop pretending, stop faking. I already know what is in you. Come to me. If you're weary and tired of playing this game, of pretending, like, stop. The Savior knows what's in you. He knew what was in Peter, and He loved Peter. He knew what was in Paul when he was Saul, and He loved him. He knew what was in Abraham. And we talked about Abraham like a week or two ago, and he's crazy. God loved him. He knows what's in you and he loves you. And so it will not be his lack of love that will keep us from coming to him. It will only be our lack of repentance and a lack of accepting that we are far worse off than we think we are. And so repent. Turn away. Turn to Jesus for healing and mercy. Because yes, as Tim Keller says, we are, far more, we are far worse than we dare imagine. But we are also far more loved than we could ever dare to dream. So repent. Don't live in hypocrisy. Don't live in pretension. Don't make big prayers and write big checks to the church to get people to notice you. And so if that's a way we aren't to give out of pretense for show, well, what are some ways we are to give? Well, 2B and 2C in your notes are this. 2B, give as an act of worship. And then 2C, give in faith. All right? Give as an act of worship and give in faith. We'll deal with them in order. Giving as an act of worship first. And when I say worship, I'm not talking about 
emotion. That you try to come in here and just get some emotion, get some feel, get some... Like that's you trying to use God to get a hit of just good feelings. Does God give good feelings? Yes. Is that what it's about? No. So when we're talking about worship here, we're talking in the sense of obedience. That we are to give as an act of worship, as an act of obedience, and so just cutting straight to the jugular, what everybody wants to answer. Are we to tithe? What does the Bible actually say about tithing? Is that something that Christians do? Or is that like an Old Testament thing that is no longer? Well, a couple of things. As we survey the Scriptures, I want us to, to note. First, let's think about the Old Testament for a, for a moment. And this is one thing you need to know. Tithing is the basic pattern of giving in the Old Testament. Like, that is unquestionable. Tithing is the basic pattern of giving in the Old Testament. Now, why a tenth? I don't know. Maybe because we have ten fingers and it's easy to do the math. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just, again, it just assumes a tenth. But regardless, the idea of tithing shows up pretty early in Scripture. The first place you see it is in Genesis chapter 14, which is what Hebrews 7 is referencing. We're talking about Abraham and Melchizedek. That's what it's talking about, Genesis 14. You see it again in Genesis 28, from there, it just rolls out through the law, the prophets, the writings, Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 14, 2 Chronicles 31, Nehemiah 13. All of these are some highlights. But the idea and the practice of tithing was central to Jewish life. Jewish people would tithe their cereal, their fruit, their livestock, on and on. It was paid to Levites. The Levites, in turn, tithed what had been tithed to them. And so it's just the absolute established pattern in the Old Testament. We have to understand that, first of all. Secondly, though, as we turn to the New Testament, you need to understand this. Tithing is never stated as an obligation in the New Testament. Not once. Not one time. Now, giving, that is all over the New Testament. Like, almost on every single page. I mean, the command to give and to, to live generously to the church, to the poor, to the needy. That is all over the New Testament. But there's not one verse that states tithing as an obligation in the New Testament. Matter of fact, outside of Hebrews 7, the word is hardly even mentioned. One of the few places it is is Matthew 23, where Jesus is again rebuking the Pharisees who are bragging about tithing their dill and cumin. And he's like, that's great, but don't forget to practice the weightier matters of justice and mercy. And so why is this? Why is tithing not really talked about in the New Testament? Well, people I respect immensely say that it's because the New Testament's idea of giving isn't about, a tithe, isn't about tithing or a percentage, but just generous giving. And so since some could give more than 10%, Paul just talks about lavish giving, not out of our abundance, but out of our poverty, like the poor widow here. And I totally get this because, like, being honest, a lot of people, like, 10% just lets them off the hook. Like, it's, they're not going to miss it. They got plenty, right? So it's not a big deal. Okay, 10%, here, check my box, I'm done. So I get that. It's not sacrificial. And so it creates a notion that not everything belongs to God. Just this 10%, and let me do my deal, and then this is mine over here. Now, the scope of stewardship is everything is God's. And so they are absolutely right in stating that the New Testament does not lay down the tithe as a principle for living, but listen to me, neither does it set it aside. 
It does not say, you will not find one verse in the New Testament that says, oh yeah, that tithe idea, that's old, that's done with, that's out of here, don't worry about that. And so therefore, in the words, but not the accent of Alistair Begg, and just side note, why does the world have to have it so that if you have a Scottish accent, you're super smart, but if you have an accent from Pine Log, Georgia, you're looked down upon. Right? Why can't we flip those? And anyhow, with that great accent, you know, talking about yes and amen, the New Testament does not lay down the tithe as a principle for living, but neither does it set it aside. Begg says this, it is therefore not unreasonable to assume that the New Testament presupposes that the giving of God's people would be at a minimum equal to the standard pattern of the Old Testament. I mean, when you think about what Jesus does with every element of the wall, think Sermon on the Mount, what does he do? He ups it every single time. Well, you know, it says not to murder, but I say to you, don't, don't even be angry. That's like murder in your heart. It says not to commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even lust. That's like adultery. He always ups everything. And so going back to Matthew 23, where he does talk about tithing, Jesus affirms the Pharisees, first of all, before rebuking them. He says, that's awesome that you tithe your dill and your cumin and everything in your spice rack. That's good. Keep going. That's right and proper. But don't forget the more important things like mercy and justice. And so bringing all of these kind of loose strands together and trying to tie them into a big bow real quick, it is a biblical truth beyond all dispute that all your money is God's. It belongs to Him. And He's loaned it to us to steward in ways that maximize the glorification of God's greatness in the world. And then since Jesus affirms the tithe, and the letters of the New Testament neither command it nor dismiss it, I agree with accent king, beg, when he says, the New Testament therefore seems to presuppose that the giving of God's people would be at a minimum equal to the standard pattern of the Old Testament. So are Christians today to tithe? Yes, as a starting place. But that said, it would be ludicrous to think that just the 10% only settles the issue of good stewardship. Again, there are people, it just lets you off the hook. 10%, that's easy. Other people, 10%, that's sacrificial. Like this lady here. And so John Piper writes some, some of you got all geeked up. You're Piper, yay! He nails it with some hard questions. Here's what he writes. In a world of such immense need and in a country of such immense luxury and under the commission of such a powerful Lord, the issue of stewardship is not shall I tithe, but rather how much of God's trust fund dare I use to surround myself with comforts. He continues, the question is not can I afford to tithe, but can I justify the lifestyle that consumes 90% of my income? And behind that is the question, do I love to use God's money to spread justice and mercy and spiritual hope in the world, or do I prefer to 
embezzle his money to purchase more and more comforts for myself. Because it's not our money. It's his. Everything belongs to him. And when you get that, it changes the way you approach everything. We want to be more like the superficial, hypocritical scribe who gives out of his abundance or like the sacrificial hope in heaven widow. Like a scribe or widow. We are, which one are we more like, truthfully? Superficial or sacrificial? We've got to wrestle with this. Like this shouldn't just be a... I hope you're uncomfortable. I am. We should all be. Can we justify the way we live our life? Truly? And I'm not talking some sort of... Like there, there are two problems a lot of times as you think about possessions and money and wealth. You have the prosperity gospel. I think we all understand that's a bad problem. There's also something called the poverty gospel. Where it's like if you're not poor and just like scraping the bottom of the barrel and giving everything, then, then, then you are a great big sinner. Like you've got to be balanced in these things. But truly, we do need to ask. We live in Williamson County for crying out loud or Rutherford or Davidson. Can we justify the way we live? We have to wrestle with these things. And so tithing is not the goal. Lavish giving is. First to the church and then to other things as well. God gave lavishly to us in creation and in the cross and He calls us to give lavishly as well. Because giving is every bit as much an act of worship as praying and singing and reading the Bible, listening to God's Word preached. It is an act of worship, one of the most tangible and concrete ones you can see. And so give as an act of worship. Then also give in faith. Give in faith. I mean, you look at the poor unnamed widow here. Jesus praises her. She gave all that she had. A couple of coins. We might not even bend over on the sidewalk to pick them up if we saw them. But this gift indicated a great truth about her and a great truth about God. About her, it indicated that she completely trusted the Lord. And about God, it indicated that He is completely trustworthy. Friends, she was not owned by the little that she had. She was not owned by the little bit of wealth that she had. What about you and me? Are we owned by the little bit of wealth that we have? Does it own us? Does it control us? Instead, this lady, she lived free and confident that God is more valuable and more reliable than those few cents that she gave away because everything belongs to Him. And so she gave not only all of her money, but all of herself to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do we follow Christ like that? Does God have all of you? See, God's not after our money. He has plenty. He's after us. But our money shows. Like, money talks, right? That's a common saying. It tells where our hearts are. And so, we cannot give ourselves to God apart from our money. 
So what does giving say about your heart and your life? Generosity? Sacrificial? Or superficial? It's mine. I'm going to get all I can, can all I get, sit on the can. And so it's not about size, it's, it's about sacrifice. And so don't look at your financial giving on the outside the way the scribes did. All right, I can check the box. Look at your giving from the inside, like God does. What's the motivation? What's going on? Why? Are you trusting me? Or are you trusting in money? Are you trying to control everything by your wealth? Or are you trusting me to provide for you? Now, sometimes I, I, I have this internal dialogue with God. I don't know if it's a prayer or I don't know if I even want to describe it as a prayer. But sometimes I'm like, God, I'd be a really good millionaire. <laughs> like, if I could just find a lotto ticket on the ground and it's the winning ticket because I'm just as likely to do that as I would if I bought one, I'd be really good with that. I would give and I would... But I think the Lord, I, no, He knows my heart a little better than I do, right? I probably wouldn't be. I'd probably, that, that stuff would take over. All my hope, all my security would then be wrapped up in the millions that I have. Trust would wane. Sometimes God keeps us in positions that we would prefer to get out of because He loves us and He knows what's best for us. And so, this lady gave all she had, she flung herself on the mercy and grace of Christ. What do we do? Do we, are we trusting in the Lord like that? He is trustworthy. But then one last thing that this section of Scripture points out is, like contextually, where we're at in the book of Luke, we're near the end. Chapter 20, verse 21. What's already, Jesus, this is, this is, this is in Holy Week. He has already had triumphal entry, chapter 19. This is probably Tuesday, Wednesday. He is about to be crucified and, and, and highlighting the sacrificial gift of this lady who gave all. Jesus is preparing His disciples for the sacrificial gift that He is about to give when He gave His all for you and for me and for them. To rescue us from our rebellion, to rescue us from our hypocrisy, to rescue us from shame and pain and guilt and regret, to give us hope, to give us forgiveness, to give us eternal life. And so as much as hearing about tithing and the particulars of that today, I want you to also hear, like, you are loved by Christ lavishly he gave his life his all for you and when we understand how god gave that will help shape a new understanding of how we are also to give we don't give out of duty that would be grudge giving. We give out of gratitude. 
which is truly thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unmerited, undeserved grace and mercy and love that you have for us. That you love us in spite of us. That you put up with us. You forbear with us. And you don't give miserly. You give lavishly, graciously to us in salvation, in forgiveness, and in the particular materials of, of life. Now, we're blessed, Lord. And we recognize we did nothing to deserve that. Yes, we may have a job, we may have gone to school, we may have done this, done that. We did nothing to be born in the United States versus born in a country that's famine-ravaged. So help us to see, God, that the earth is yours and the fullness thereof. And to live a lifestyle of generosity. Because we are a mist, we are a vapor, you are eternal, and we are just here to steward for a little while. your stuff. Help us to consciously understand that as we are making decisions about houses and cars and clothes and schools and all the other, all the stuff for it. We're mist, we're vapor, we're here to steward for a little while until we go home to the reward. Soon and very soon. Help us to understand that all we have truly is you. And in you, we have far more than we could ever want or need. Give us wisdom to see these things. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.